Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, September 5th. My name is Doug Taylor. Uh, great to have you all here tonight. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, We're going to start tonight in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 9. And the verse reads, The way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem, but he loves a pursuer of righteousness. The way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem, but he loves a pursuer of righteousness. <clears throat> so as we've done in our previous classes, I would start out by asking you, what are the questions around this verse? What kinds of things would we need to define or answer or understand in order to fully appreciate what it is that King Solomon is trying to teach us in this verse? The way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem, but he loves a pursuer of righteousness. Okay, Louis, thank you. Why is it an abomination? Uh, and in fact, what is an abomination? Uh, it says the way of a wicked person is an abomination. What does that mean? We hear that word from time to time in Proverbs and in other places. Very important that we understand what it's getting at. What other questions could we ask? Okay, good. What, what do we mean by a wicked person? Um, and, and what is the way of a wicked person? Uh, what else? Anything else? So I would ask this question. What does it mean that he loves a pursuer of righteousness? I mean, okay, the way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem. That means something probably bad. Uh, but what does it mean when he loves someone like that? And particularly, so what? I mean, the, what's, so God loves a particular kind of person. What's the practical effect on us of that? I mean, Mishlei is a practical book. So God loves me or God doesn't love me, you know, what's the actual impact? Okay, and did, did someone want to say something? How does one pursue righteousness? Ah, good question. How does a person pursue righteousness? Okay, good. So, there's one other question that's kind of lurking here, and that is, note that it says that the way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem. It does not refer to the wicked act itself. It doesn't say the thing that a wicked person does is an abomination to Hashem. It says the way of a wicked person. So that also suggests that there's something going on here that we need to dig into. So let's look at that term, abomination. We've discussed in the past that an abomination of Hashem means something very deep. You don't necessarily notice the consequences of it clearly, but it results in something very bad potentially, particularly over time. So in this case, what does the way of the wicked actually result in? I will suggest to you that it ultimately results in the destruction of the person, of the wicked person. And I'll also suggest that God does not want to see his creation destroy itself. 
So it's an abomination to him to watch or to see, and I'm using these anthropomorphic terms, because uh, God obviously is not physical and doesn't see in the way that we do. But it's an abomination to him because the way of the wicked person is a way of destruction. Now, how does that work? When a person goes down the path of the wicked, he operates according to his fantasy emotional desires. He's not involved in the world of reality and the world of understanding what's actually going on in the world. He's involved in trying to satisfy his own desires. He's headed down a particular road. And we've discussed before that that road leads ultimately to calamity. And the reason for that is because the wicked person is acting at odds with reality. His whole focus is in this direction. I mean, we're not talking about somebody who just, you know, occasionally has a desire for something, you know, that may be uh, not beneficial to him. We're talking about somebody who has focused his life in this direction. And as we discussed in uh, a previous verse last week, that person is ultimately going to be discovered and found out uh, because he is operating that way. The sheer fact that he's operating not in accordance with reality, by definition means that he's eventually going to slam up against reality, and it's probably going to be pretty uncomfortable. And what's worse is that the longer he goes down that road, the worse that he digs himself in. He keeps straying farther and farther from reality until he essentially destroys his ability to think clearly. We've talked about you know, if somebody has a desire, for example, to, uh, I think we talked about last week, cheat on a test, the worst thing that can happen is that he'll be successful. Because what that will do is start to convince his mind, oh, I can cheat on tests and I can get away with it. And then he'll try it again and again. And then he'll try something more and something more. And pretty soon he gets caught up in this very false idea that he can essentially bend reality and make it work the way that he wants it to. So, the longer it goes, the worse that he digs himself in, and eventually he destroys his ability to think clearly. And that results in a condition we sometimes refer to as megalomania, where a person's ego gets so far out of control that they think they're invincible, and they start ignoring the very clear reality going on around them. Uh, and one of the uh, examples that we've given on this uh, in the past uh, is Hitler. He got so caught up in his supposed invincibility that uh, he totally lost sight uh, of reality. Okay, so that's the first half of the verse. The way of a wicked person is an abomination to Hashem. What about the second half? It says that Hashem loves a pursuer of righteousness. So what does that mean? And I'll suggest that this is getting at the point that we discussed in a verse that we did last week. The pursuer of righteousness is operating in reality. He's working within God's systems. He's looking at consequences. He's analyzing situations rationally. And God has created his systems, the systems that we all work within, 
so that the person who operates within them has the best chance for success in the physical world. That, I will suggest, is the love that's being talked about in the second half. God loves the pursuer of righteousness, and he's created systems that produce success for those people who operate righteously. Uh, and as Rabbi Moskowitz indicated in our discussion on the, the previous verse last week, the laws of nature fit into the philosophy of Torah. So this is God's love for the pursuer of righteousness, that he has created the laws of nature that coincide with the philosophy of Torah and righteousness, and so a person who pursues that is going to reap success in this world. Not just We're not talking necessarily about the world to come. We're talking about this world, the physical world we all live in, that we all have to work in right now. So that, I'll suggest, is what the second half is talking about, that he loves a pursuer of righteousness, that he's created systems that work best and provide a person with success when they work within the reality that God created. Now, a question was asked, uh, Vicki, I think you said, what does it mean to pursue righteousness? I will suggest that that is the world of being involved uh, in the world of thought, the world of ideas, the world of understanding the ways of Hashem from studying his Torah and studying Proverbs just like we are now, understanding the systems that God created and operating within those systems. And I think uh, particularly keeping in mind an entire world view. In other words, life doesn't center around me. Okay, what are there, six billion people on the planet? I'm just like one little speck in the sea of humanity that, uh, that exists in the world. And so when I think about actions and look at actions that I could take in a particular situation, I have to think about not only what's the impact on me, what's the impact on the other people, what's the impact on the community, what's the impact on the world. And if I recognize that and I'm operating in that framework, okay, then I'm operating with a sense of, uh, of justice, uh, recognizing my true place in the world, which is just one person amongst a sea of others. Yes, I have needs, so do other people. And so I keep that perspective in account uh, or in the forefront of my mind when I'm looking at situations and making decisions. So I will suggest to you that being involved in that world of thought and the study of truth and reality is uh, the pursuit of righteousness. Obviously, doing good deeds and the kinds of things that uh, we read about in the Torah would be part of that, and keeping halacha and keeping commandments uh, is also part and parcel of that. Uh, okay, let me pause and ask for questions. Uh, Prescott, you asked, doesn't the use of the word pursuer share the idea of the way of the wicked? Yes, I think that if I'm understanding your question, the two are juxtaposed here. So we're talking about the way of the wicked in comparison to a pursuer of righteousness. Uh, is that the, the idea that you were trying to get across? Okay, good. Thanks. Any other questions on this verse? 
If not, then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 10. And this verse reads, Harsh discipline will come to him who forsakes the path. One who hates reproof will die. Harsh discipline will come to him who forsakes the path. One who hates reproof will die. Charles, great question. What is the path? You know, it says the path. What path? Which path? Yes. Uh, what does that mean? That's a great question. Um, what other questions could we ask around this? What qualifies as harsh discipline? Very good. Thank you. What is harsh discipline? I mean, we kind of know what discipline is. What does it mean for harsh discipline? Uh, or what, what is the meaning of that? Um, and it also indicates, um, you know, what harsh discipline comes to him who forsakes the path. What does it mean to forsake it? Um, and Linda, you've asked, how will they die? Yeah, one who hates reproof will die. How does that happen? Do we see that actually occur, you know, in the physical world? Um, and Louis, good question. What's reproof? You know, what is that about? Good questions. So let's start at the beginning. I'll suggest that the path is the path of truth and reality, the path of righteousness that we were talking about in the previous verse. Uh, it's the, the path of consequences, of justice, of analyzing situations, of operating in accordance with one's intellect rather than following one's emotions. It's, it's discovering the path of Torah and digging into study and learning to understand what is that path and what are proper actions and what are improper actions and uh, what kinds of character traits should I be working on within myself. Uh, all those types of things are, I'll suggest to you, uh, the path of Torah. Now, what happens when a person, for whatever reason, forsakes that path? In other words, they, they, they give it up. They quit, temporarily or permanently, and they go off on some other path. I'll suggest that the natural thing that happens is the person gets consequences. I mean, if, just as an example, uh, you are dealing diplomatic with, diplomatically with your boss, and then one day you, you know, have a, a brain meltdown, and you're really upset about something, and you start yelling and screaming at him or her, that action's probably going to have consequences, and they're probably not going to be pleasant. In fact, that's probably going to be what we would call harsh discipline. So a person that forsakes that path of thinking about consequences, of analyzing situations, is going to get consequences, and those consequences can be harsh. And they can be a very strong wake-up call that I have strayed off the path. So, again, as we've discussed uh, previously, the systems that we live under are set up to give us consequential feedback about our actions. And so, you know, if you stray from the path, eventually you'll get consequences. And that consequence is a big flag that says, hello, uh, this is not a good path to go down. 
Now, importantly, that feedback sometimes doesn't materialize for a while. It can be delayed. I mean, you can do things now and you won't see consequences right away. You'll only see consequences 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. Uh, if we all got instant and complete consequences for the acts that we do, we'd probably all be dead. Uh, but this is part of God's mercy to us, that we don't get immediate consequences for everything. You may recall that God is described sometimes as slow to anger. It's my understanding that that is what this phrase is referring to. God gives us some time to consider our actions so that we have time to repent, which is a great gift of mercy to us. Uh, I mean, if we got what we you know, deserve for what we do or we got immediate consequences for everything, uh, we'd probably end up with fairly short lives. Um, and Prescott, you've, you've quoted Psalms 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. Absolutely. That is the path. And it's not a path that's like, well, I'm going to make you go through this even though it's really, you know, kind of a pain to go through, but this is what I want you to do. It is the best life uh, that, that you can have in this world. Not, not talking about the world to come. That's a whole separate discussion. Proverbs is talking about this life right now, the best life you can have. Uh, and I'll submit to you that the Torah life is the very best life that you can have here, now, in this physical world. Uh, so, uh, and, um, <laughs> yeah, Jerry pointed out you'd never make it past age six. And, and Prescott, you've said if we didn't have... Uh, you know, a time period, we wouldn't be able to exercise free will. Yeah, those are good points. I mean, this whole opportunity for us to have time to think about our actions and realize, oh man, the way I operated, you know, five years ago, that was really dumb. And now, you know, I have an opportunity to fix it and change it. That's a great gift. So it's a wonderful thing that, that God is, in essence, slow to, to, uh, to anger. Now, Vicki, you've asked, in that time, can tshuva change consequences? It is my understanding uh, that tshuva, and I'm going to talk about consequences from two different standpoints. One is um, actual physical consequences that you get. Uh, and the answer, I think, is yes. Uh, I mean, if you were, uh, let me take an, an extreme example. Um, you were... Uh, eating uh, six pints of haagen uh, every single day, day in and day out. And you suddenly realize, you know, this is probably not the best thing I could be doing for myself. If you, uh, you know, do tshuva around that and repent and realize, hmm, this is not so wise, maybe a little bit of haagen once in a while, but six pints a day is kind of overdoing it. Yes, there are obviously going to be consequences for your health by the fact that you changed that. So the repentance that you do can change the consequences that you get. Uh, a person who's involved in an unhealthy habit of some one sort or another, by changing what they do, they will get, you know, consequences from, uh, you know, uh, from having changed that. At the same time, it is also my understanding when we talk about halakhic sin, uh, that when a person does true repentance, 
the past sin is converted into a merit as a result of, uh, of the repentance. So in that sense, you also change consequences from the way that those past sins are viewed in the eyes of Hashem. So tshuva is a wonderful gift uh, to people, uh, you know, to be able to uh, change consequences. Now, Prescott, you said, yeah, if you're already on the hospital bed, that's true. I mean, you can, uh, you know, if a person does something harmful to themselves for, you know, uh, 81 years and then, uh, you know, finds themselves on the hospital bed, they may do tshuva, but it may be a little late to undo a lot of the physical consequences. So uh, it depends on where you are in the process. But uh, at the very least, you can always make that turn and I think get, uh, you know, some benefit out of that. Uh, even if it's, you know, from a physical standpoint, uh, if it's just a, uh, a small one. I had a very interesting... Um, <laughs> A question that I asked once of a guy who was giving a health seminar, and he was talking about making changes in your life. Uh, and I said to him, you know, do you ever get past the point of no return, where, you know, you've done something so long or had a bad eating habit so long that, you know, you're just not going to be able to get any change? Uh, and he said, yeah, the point of no return is when you're dead. He said, otherwise, as long as you're still alive, you can make changes and have some things happen. So, uh, you know, you can take that for what it's worth, uh, but I'd, I'd suggest that, uh, you know, the tshuva opportunity is there for us all in, in just about every area, in, in every area of our life. Now, what happens if a person doesn't heed this warning or is given a verbal warning by someone else? That, I will suggest is the one who hates reproof. And they will ultimately die. In other words, they forsook the path, okay, and worse, they're unwilling to accept the feedback that tells them they're off the path. Either the feedback they got right in their face, you know, because of the, the obvious consequences that they're getting, or the fact that somebody wise came along and said to them, hey, look, do you realize you're doing this thing that's killing you? Uh, and they're just unwilling to accept the feedback. They hate reproof. They don't want anybody <clears throat> to tell them how to do it or what to do. And so they have a resistance to that. So what will happen? They will continue with a lifestyle of forsaking the path. And as we've discussed before, that will lead to worse and worse consequences and ultimately to their death. Because as the Rabbeinu Yonah tells us, there is no way to correct their actions. If they're not willing to see it and they're not willing to take a correction from someone else, they're in a really, really bad way. And where that ultimately leads is uh, to the point of, of death. Now, we all die, that's true. So when it says one who hates reproof will die, somebody can say, well, you know, we all die. That's true, but my understanding is in Proverbs when it's talking about this, it's talking about essentially dying before your time. So a person who hates reproof, who's going down that, uh, the wrong path, is very likely going to encounter consequences that will cause him to have a shorter life. And 
less quality of life along the way. You know, a person can be alive and sort of dead at the same time if the quality of their life is so terrible, even though their heart's still pumping and their, you know, their blood's still moving around. Uh, so the verse is telling us that um, about a two-step process here, or two levels of straying from the path of truth and reality. In the first half, the person strays and receives discipline. Now, if they heed the discipline, if they analyze the consequences, if they look at the situation and realize what they've done, then they can get back on the path. But if they hate reproof and they don't listen to the discipline, then there isn't any way to correct them. And as a result of that, they will ultimately cut short the length of their life, the quality of their life, or both. Okay, and Prescott, yeah, you're ignoring the light that has been shed on the path they've chosen. You know, the consequences and the signals are there uh, if somebody looks. Uh, but if they choose not to, and some people make that choice, then there's not a lot that can be done. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay. Let's, here we go, I've got to get my recording started, um, to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 11. Very short proverb. It says, the grave is before God, and certainly the heart of man. The grave is before God, and certainly the heart of man. So what kind of questions does that rather short verse raise. Okay, Vicki, good. Is it a physical grave? Yeah, what grave? Linda, good. So what are we talking about there? What else? Anything come to mind? So a couple possible questions. What does it mean that the grave is before God? I mean, if God's omnipotent, everything is before him. So why would the verse specifically talk about the grave? Okay, thank you. Jewish Publication Society, uh, Proverbs 15:11 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie exposed to the Lord, how much more the minds of men. Okay, all right, similar, slightly different. Uh, wording, but I think a similar intent here. Um, sometimes the different translations will actually translate the verse differently, uh, sometimes with just a subtle uh, difference and sometimes with a completely different meaning. Um, so, first question I would ask is why, why is the verse specifically talking about the grave? Because obviously God knows everything. And then it says in the second half, certainly the heart of man. Well, that's the same concern as the first question. I mean, if, if everything is before God, then certainly the heart of man is before God. And why does he use the word certainly? And then, what is the heart of man? What's that about? Okay, and Charles, you've said on Chabad.org, it says the grave and destruction are opposite the Lord, surely people's hearts. Okay, yep, similar, I, I think a similar, uh, similar reading, slightly different translation. 
So Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to uh, explain the verse this way. He said, whenever you use the word certainly, when you have a statement like this, it's saying that there are degrees involved. There are two degrees. And since God could know what's going on under the earth, that is, in the grave, then certainly he can know what's going on in the mind of man. So then the question is, how could King Solomon give degrees to God? I mean, after all, God is one. He doesn't have different qualities and different degrees. So how could King Solomon say that there are two degrees here with regard to God? Like, he knows what's under the ground, and he also certainly then knows the heart of man. And he, want, he said like this, he said the degrees that are indicated here have to do with how God knows. That is, if God knows what is going on beneath the ground, then certainly he knows what's going on in the mind of man. But how can we say that? Because once we say that God knows, we can't make a distinction between how he knows this and how he knows that. King Solomon seems to be saying that God knows what's beneath the earth, but not in the minds of man, and that for the second part there, we need a proof for it. But then how could we bring a proof for it since he's saying that God has degrees? So, by other things, we can have different degrees, but by God, as we've discussed, you can't have different degrees. I mean, again, God is one. So at this point, we're not trying to understand what the degrees are or how they work. That's a problem that we'll deal with eventually. But before we can deal with that, we have to deal with the problem of whether there are two levels of God's knowledge here. One is that he could see beneath the ground, and a lower level of God-knowing things seems to be, according to this verse, in the mind of man. So, how is it that can God can have different degrees of knowing things? And Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. He said the answer to this is that the verse is talking about a person that holds that God knows everything except one thing. He doesn't think that God knows what is in the mind of the human. So he's saying this verse is talking to that particular type of person, the guy who's saying that God has a certain end, a certain limit, if you will, that he cannot know what is in the mind of man. But he accepts everything else about God. He accepts that God knows everything. And the reason why he doesn't accept that God knows what's in his mind is because emotionally he wants to have what is in his mind as private. That person always feels that what he thinks about is a private thing, and who he chooses to divulge it to is his business. So if he thinks evil thoughts, he wants to think that no one and nobody can know about it. That emotion affects the way he views God. He thinks God's, yeah, omnipotent, except for the stuff in my head. That's my own. That's my private little domain. And God doesn't know what's in there. And so even though he accepts that God knows everything, even that which is beneath the crust of the earth, which nobody else could know, the grave, 
Even with that, this guy holds that God could not know the human mind. So then we've got to ask this person, how does God know? I mean, he knows that God doesn't see, that he's not physical. So we're not talking about that kind of a person that's making an anthropomorphic thing here. He accepts that God knows, but he just doesn't think about it. It's sort of a vague thing to him that kind of God knows what's going on all over, except, of course, in my head. So we want to say that however God knows, it's with ideas that God knows about the physical. He doesn't have eyes, okay? So he doesn't see physically the way that we do. So somehow through ideas, God knows the physical, okay? This is an important idea. Now, if God knows the physical world through ideas, then he should surely know what's on the mind of a human being, which is only ideas. That's all that's what's going on in our heads is ideas. In other words, we're saying that since God can't see the physical world because he's not physical, so somehow he knows the physical world, and he knows every aspect of it. How he does knows that, we don't know. But he does know. So if he knows the physical world through ideas, then surely he knows what's on your mind and what's on my mind and what's on everybody's mind. Because what is on our mind is only ideas. It's only stuff in our minds. So he should know that. Okay, so why did King Solomon bother answering this question? And let me pause, Jim, and get your comment. Uh, so he points out that as a man who hasn't even the knowledge of what lies beyond the grave cannot determine that the God who understands the physical and metaphysical both is unable to fathom the human heart and judge it, So, Jim, I just want to make sure I'm understanding if that's a question or if that's a comment. But my understanding is the verse is directed. It's a query. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, my understanding of the verse is that it is being addressed to, the, to a guy who somehow thinks that God knows everything. <laughs> That's all right. God knows everything, but the reality of the fact that he knows what's going on in my head is not real to the guy. He thinks that what goes on in his head is his private little domain. Uh, and that that is what King Solomon is trying to say uh, to this guy. You know, if you accept that God is omnipotent, you better get it that God knows what's going on in your head. Jim, am I answering your question? Not sure I fully understood it. Okay, good. Thank you. So, why did King Solomon bother answering this question? It's not really his style in this book. His style is just to talk about the difference between the wicked and the righteous, or the wise and the fool. Why does he bother answering this question? And Rabbi Moskowitz answered that question by saying that King Solomon is trying to teach us 
that when a person has an incorrect premise, if at all possible, you should try to guide him to the correct ideas and to truth via his premise. If it's possible, don't try to change his premise. Get him to see the truth through his own premise, and then he'll be able to see the truth, and then he can see the new premise. So how did King Solomon do that here? The premise of this other person, the person to whom this verse is addressed, is that he accepts that God knows everything. But there's only a certain emotion that stops him from seeing the truth about what's going on in his own mind. It's an emotion that's stopping him from, um, uh, you know, seeing that, well, gee, if God knows everything else, I guess he must know my own head. So accepting the premise that God knows about the physical world, once you accept that premise, then you can lead the person to show him that God must certainly know what's on his mind. In other words, uh, the guy's premise isn't really thought all the way through, but it's a certain emotion that's stopping him, so he doesn't get completely through the idea. So King Solomon's taken his premise, the premise that he accepts the fact that God knows everything else, and based on that, he's saying, well, if God knows that, then surely he knows what's on your mind, and, you know, we'll show that to you. And since God knows the physical through ideas, because he doesn't see, therefore he must know ideas, so based on your premise, we show that you know you must accept the true idea that God understands your mind as well. So from this, you see that whenever you're trying to prove something to somebody, if you can, you should always try to prove it from their premises because it will be easier for them to accept than trying to tell them that their premise is incorrect. Okay, any questions on this verse? Prescott, you've asked, does this correlate in any way to the previous verses? Mm, only in a general sense in that, you know, we refer, we refer to some of the previous ideas, but I'm not aware that these verses are, um, according to the commentators, necessarily connected to uh, the others. We're going to run into one uh, coming up on 1513 uh, that has some connection uh, I understand, to uh, 13, 14, and 15. Uh, so sometimes the verses are, uh, and sometimes they seem to be standalone. Uh, and why some are one way and some are another, I don't have an answer to. Okay, any other questions? Okay, let's move on to... Proverbs chapter 15, verse 12. And the verse reads, The lates, a lates is a certain type of fool, does not love any type of guidance, and therefore to the wise he does not go. The lates, or the uh, certain type of fool, does not love any type of guidance, and therefore to the wise he does not go. Okay, and Jim, good question. What type of fool? Uh, and we will get to that. Great question. Um, 
And yours says scorner. Sometimes, uh, yeah, some of the translations will use a different type of word uh, because there are several different types of fools in Proverbs, and sometimes they'll pronounce it uh, a different way. Um, uh, it does not go where? Okay, Charles, good. Therefore, to the wise, uh, he does not go. So I think the verse is saying the fool uh, does not love any type of guidance, and because of that, he will not go to a wise person. Uh, that's my understanding of the, of the syntax. Uh, Louis, what guidance would a fool go for? Very good. Okay, good question. Um, and Prescott, yes, he doesn't go to anyone for guidance. Uh, when will that's a good question. We'll get to that too. Uh, or goes to where he will be affirmed in his own way. Excellent point. Excellent point. Okay, and Jerry, yours says scoffer. Okay. Um, and Vicky, you've said, who are the wise? Okay, good. Excellent questions. I would also add to that, why doesn't the fool, in this case, the lates, love guidance? And why doesn't he go to the wise? And one final question uh, is, why does King Solomon bother to tell us that he will not go to the wise? I mean, if he doesn't want guidance... He's certainly not going to go to the wise. So why does King Solomon even bother to add that point? So there are two ways of answering the last question. And again, uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, as, as I almost always am, relying on uh, Rabbi Morton Moskowitz's uh, interpretation of these verses. Uh, there are two ways of answering that last question about why King Solomon bothers to, uh, to tell us this. Why, why does he bother to tell us that the, the fool won't go to the wise? The first is an implication that he does not go to the wise, but he must go to somebody else. Okay. Now, who does he go to? And Prescott, I think you were alluding to this. Uh, yes, Jim, very good point. Uh, does he uh, does it mean he goes to some but to those who will affirm or to those whom he can disdain okay uh, and Rabbi Moskowitz indicated that he goes to his peers so for example let's say that a person from a particular political party wants to discuss certain ideas he's probably going to go to other people in that same political party. And even if those people disagree with him, they're going to disagree with him based on the same premises that he holds. He's gone to a set of peers who have the basic set of beliefs that he does, and so he feels comfortable with those. So what King Solomon seems to be telling us here is that a fool or the lates is a person that will ask advice from people who hold the same premise. And even if they argue with him, they're going to argue based on his premises and he'll be able to deal with that. He can handle that much. But if he goes to the wise, the wise are going to address his basic premise 
And they're going to take away that basic premise. They're going to challenge it. And he doesn't want to change his basic premises. Because then he'd have to change his life around. And he doesn't want to have to do that. So, therefore, it says that, when it says that uh, to the wise he doesn't go, what it's saying is instead he goes to the type of people who have the same fantasies that he has. So that even if they tell him something different, it'll be something he can identify and relate to. Again, because they're working from the same premises, but he's not uh, a person who can change over to a completely new premise. And you find that sometimes you've been around people who, when they want to rant about something, they will go rant with a group of people who they know will agree with them or will be in kind of the same camp, rather than going and ranting to someone who will say, well, you know, the basic premise of your whole rant is wrong. Uh, because, you know, we want a certain um, emotional um, uh, validation uh, in what we do. Okay, uh, let me pause here for questions. Let me just make sure I didn't miss anything in the comments. Uh, so, oops, my comments keep cutting out here. So, Prescott, you said if someone comes to you for guidance uh, and you think he's a fool, it could tell you something about yourself or him that he isn't really a fool depending on whether he really is. Uh, that's a very good point. I mean, you have to ask and ask questions. I mean, if somebody comes to you with an idea and challenges your premises, you know, you have to be open enough to critically look at it, but also determine, okay, you know, have they got me, uh, you know, have they nailed me on something and they're right? Or they're totally off the wall and they really don't know what they're talking about. And uh, it's a very, very good point. Uh, I, was, uh, I was with Rabbi Moskowitz today and he reiterated a point he's made a number of times that Sajigyan uh, said that you should always think that you're right. And you should be open enough to retract if someone can show you that you're wrong. So it's kind of a dual thing. You hold that you're right because you have to operate on your own knowledge. And at the same time, if somebody can show you, oops, you made a mistake, then you say, oh, okay, now I'll change my premise and now I'm right. <laughs> and so, um, because again, you have to operate on the basis of, uh, of your mind. Okay, let's see. Did I miss anything else? Uh, doesn't look like we did here. Okay. Let me just cycle through the comments. Okay, good. Any questions on this approach on the first possibility? Okay. The second possibility, or, or approach to this verse, is that the lates, the fool, is a very intelligent person. Suppose, for example, that a person is a mathematician. Okay, he's a very abstract thinker, but he doesn't want to see any implications that would actually affect his life. So he would go to a wise person because he enjoys a good discussion, and he would like to go and get the ideas 
from that person, but he doesn't want to go because he knows that they will show him, through the ideas, a different way of life or a different view of life that he doesn't want to see, even though he's a guy that's involved in ideas. But he recognizes that they might show him something that would cause him to have to shift his life around and do some stuff that he really doesn't want to have to do, so he doesn't go there. And we see this in, in different areas of life. You see people studying, you know, maybe physics or nature or certain areas of science who don't even want to consider the implications of what they're studying in terms of how it might actually affect their own lives. They don't even want to think about it. They're just happy studying their area, but they don't want to look at any broader implications that might actually cause them to have to change. So, according to this interpretation, the lates would look like a very intelligent person. He might be a very abstract thinker, but he's not wise. A wise person would see from the ideas that the ideas are telling him something about his life and that he should change his life, but he doesn't want to see it. So in that sense, he doesn't love the guidance and therefore to a wise person he will not go because he knows what he's going to get if he goes there and he doesn't want to have to face that. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay, in that case, I'm going to suggest that we stop because there is no way that I can get through the next verse in, uh, in anywhere close to four minutes. Um, so, uh, any questions on anything we've covered or any aspects of this before we close for the evening? Okay, and that's... In that case, thank you all very much for coming. really appreciate the chance to share these ideas with you uh, and for your interactions and questions and comments, and we'll look forward to uh, talking with you next week.